The following program is a presentation of the Wartime Podcast Network in association with PCN. I hope you enjoy the program, and remember, history is best when it's shared. After a great victory over Union forces in June 1863, Robert E. Lee marches his army to Pennsylvania. The advancing Confederates clash with General Meade's Union Army at Gettysburg, beginning the most famous battle of the Civil War. Explore our nation's past and the Gettysburg battlefield with the Gettysburg Collection. Become a member to stream hundreds of Gettysburg videos online, on the app, and on Roku. Learn more at GettysburgCollection.com. Ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to Battlefield, Pennsylvania. Today we're on location in Munhall, Allegheny County. In 1892, the workers of Homestead rose up on strike against their employer, Andrew Carnegie. The resulting Homestead strike remains a watershed moment in the history of American labor. I'm your host, Brady Kreitzer. Joining me today to discuss the Homestead strike of 1892 is President and CEO of Rivers of Steel, Augie Carlino, and Charlie McAllister retired professor of history at Indiana University of Pennsylvania. Gentlemen, thank you both for being here. You're welcome, thank you. Tell us a little bit about your background. I've been with Rivers of Steel basically since it started, um, but um, I was born and raised in Pittsburgh, and uh, when I graduated from the University of Pittsburgh, took a job in Washington, D.C. with a Pittsburgh area congressman, former Congressman Bill Coyne, and um, worked there for a number of years, was a lobbyist um, off of the hill, and uh, my wife, who wanted to move to Pittsburgh, uh, brought me back here, found this job, and been here ever since, uh, working to build the National Heritage Area. Charlie? Yeah, I have a checkered career. I, had a, I came here in 1973. I had a, a doctorate in philosophy, and I actually came directly from Africa. And, uh, but I decided to do a blue-collar life. I worked restaurants for a while and worked in carpentry. Uh, and then got, I became a machinist. So for seven and a half years, I worked as a machinist. I worked at Union Switch and Signal, which is a great Westinghouse plant across the river, and became chief steward of the union. Uh, and when I was illegally terminated, according to an arbitration decision, I ended up at Indiana University of Pennsylvania and headed the Pennsylvania Center for the Study of Labor Relations, and I taught uh, labor history and negotiations at the, in the Industrial and Labor Relations Department. We think of Pittsburgh, we think of steel, but that wasn't a chance. Why was Western Pennsylvania so great for this production of steel? Well, there were a lot of um, coincidences of convergence happening in the late 1800s here. Um, iron production was starting in the Connellsville Coke region. Um, the fuel that they were basically using was wood from uh, the surrounding forests, um, but um, uh, it, was, it was the discovery of uh, a unique type of coal um, in the Connellsville Coke region that uh, provided uh, the coking fuel um, that allowed uh, folks like Carnegie to build blast furnaces and transform them from 
you know, the, uh, the small blast plantation furnaces that you might see scattered throughout the countryside to these massive blast furnaces like you see across the river at Cary Furnaces. Um, the river certainly played a big role in that. Uh, access to labor was key. Um, and, um, and for Pittsburgh, um, it also was um, a lot of um, industrial capitalists and their money that began to invest in this region. So um, it was, as I said, it was a unique convergence of coincidences that, um, that allowed this place to uh, begin in steel manufacturing, well, iron manufacturing actually, and then later on in steel. I mean, this was a major center of iron. Uh, so you had the skilled labor of people who were metal workers. Uh, as Augie said, the access to unlimited amounts of fuel uh, here close by was very critical. The, the, uh, the problem became that they didn't have enough iron here locally. So it was uh, Henry Oliver from the south side who developed a whole network of connections to the Masabi Iron Range where massive uh, amounts of iron ore were found. So developing those transportation links here was the other critical piece. We also had limestone. You need three things, and that the third thing was limestone. We have a lot of that. We have a lot of fuel, but the iron ore connection to the Masabi Iron Range made this a place to uh, a world-class center. It was, by, by the 1890s, it produced, outproduced England here in the Monongahela Valley. So it was the de-rising center of new technology, of a new way of making metal. For people at home, it's hot in here. We're sweating. That's part of being in a steel mill. Can we talk about where we are right now and what you, this used to be a part of? Well, this building is uh, part of the pump house and water tower. It's actually the location where the Battle of Homestead occurred in 1892. Uh, the half of the building that we're sitting in was built a few years after the strike occurred. Uh, the part of the building behind us is actually uh, from 1892. Um, and the pump house basically was a facility that drew water out of the river, the Monongahela River, and uh, would supply the water to different parts of the mill so that those mills that were operating on steam power would have the water in order to produce the steam and, and, and power the engines. Um, this site remains today because of the efforts of Rivers of Steel and the Battle of Homestead Foundation um, in, in uh, basically um, uh, advocating its preservation and saving when they were tearing down the mill. And then uh, ultimately us working with uh, the developer that came in, Continental Real Estate, and uh, them donating the property to our organization. and. Um, we working in tandem to preserve it. Uh, the Battle of Homestead does a whole bunch of things. I'll let Charlie talk about that here, but um, it's a uh, trailhead uh, for the Great Allegheny Passage. The parking lot outside uh, provides for that, and um, it's a great center of activity in the community. Really, and this, the pump house, when we started to really work to save it, we, it was in the context of the 100th anniversary of the strike in 1992. So about 1889-90, we, a small group began meeting, how are we gonna commemorate this and how are we gonna save this building as the mill had gone down in the previous two or three years. So uh, there were a lot of meetings took place. We, we did get the developer to agree to it and we began holding programs here from 1992 on. We had major programs here for the Centennial, up at the library in particular, but began to uh, raise money and, and cooperate with Rivers of Steel uh, in terms of uh, preserving it and making it a place where we could have educational programs. That's been our role. We uh, partnered with the United Steelworkers. 
who obviously have a deep interest in this, and we represent labor's interest at what we consider a, a extremely important site for the history of American labor movement. So that's what we try to do. We've been holding for the last probably seven or eight years, the Battle of Homestead Foundation has been doing f at least 14 programs a year, because we can't do it in the winter, it's too cold in here, but starting in April through October, we do two programs a month. One, a film series, and the second, a lecture panel, whatever, discussions that illuminate different aspects of uh, labor history, Pittsburgh history, and sometimes global labor issues, too. If we were here in 1892, uh, what would we have seen all around this? Well, this, uh, the mill then didn't include the lower uh, part. It was all up uh, right outside of here. It was uh, an early, one of the very earliest examples of op open hearth technology. The other side of the river was the Bessemer furnace, was their main uh, thing. Bessemers were extremely good at producing steel very fast, large quantities. Before this, people made iron, uh, and to make a wrought iron was difficult, which is as close as they could get to steel. It would be malleable iron that wouldn't crack like cast iron and would be workable. That's what, what steel was able to do through very high temperatures, they could get steel. But wrought iron was a very difficult process, but when you think the entire Civil War was fought with puddlers making 100 pound of uh, iron at a time, the enormous amounts of cannon and uh, ordnance, et cetera, that the Civil War had to create, much of it created here in Pittsburgh, was done by teams of workers uh, working to produce relatively small amounts, and they were paid by the amount of metal they produced, and they organized the production themselves. So they controlled the production process completely. The key here was that technological changes made it possible to take the power out of the hands of uh, teams of skilled workers and put it in the hands of large-scale capitalists because they could build the large machines that took the control of the process away from uh, teams of workers. So that, that's, they, they knew this very well. I mean, this, is, it, this had been the purpose of developing uh, the Bessemer and the open hearth was they saw the possibility of increasing production dramatically, but also tipping the power relationships. Because up until then, you had to deal with the workers who controlled the hiring, they controlled the amount of work they did. They got paid by the amount of metal, so it was in their interest to produce metal, and they produced an awful lot of it, but they controlled the process. And at Homestead, that control was broken, and it was a radical change in the working class and its power, position, and the amount of money it got paid. So this, this was really the beginning of the industrial era. Homestead, more than any other place, marks that, that shift. You know, Brady, um, building off of something that Charlie said uh, um, and jumping to today's Pittsburgh and Southwest Pennsylvania, a lot of people will say how much this region has changed. And yeah, you don't see seven mile long steel mills on the river's banks anymore, um, the way we did 125 years ago. But, but his point about the technological change um, that occurred here. If you think of Pittsburgh today and think of Pittsburgh 125 years ago, we were on the vanguard edge of technology and development then. And in fact, it's, it, it could have been called the equivalent of the Silicon Valley 125 years ago. That the, the technological advancements that were, that were made by the companies um, um, uh, and, and the engineers and, and that enabled mills like these to be built 
was all done without computers um, and was done basically by you know pencil, slide rule, and brain power. Um, but it was still the highest form of technology that the world knew. Um, so you know when people talk about a change of history, yeah, we produce a different product today. We're not producing as much steel necessarily, but what we're producing is a, a very highly sophisticated technological industry. And the other things that we're working on as a region, the eds and meds that they talk about with Pittsburgh and the labor that's needed for that, it's all part of a technological transformation that still basically has the foundational elements that Carnegie and Frick and the others took advantage of 125 years ago. So in a way, we really haven't changed that much, you know? Uh, yeah, and I think the, the critical thing to me, looking at the future of young people, we young people today face uncertainty about where are they gonna make their living, how are they gonna earn their bread, because technology is changing the very way that we can conceive of how they might do that. We really don't know. We deal with Still Valley High School up here. That's what they're most concerned about. Where are these kids going to get a job? What kind of a family wage, you know, life-sustaining future do they have? So it was the same issue for the workers at Homestead. They saw their, their skills being degraded. They saw their power being reduced. And they saw massive corporate power taking its place. Today, we face a situation with artificial intelligence, robots, drones, uh, genetic engineering, on and on, where the, where, which can be great technological advances can be used for the good of all, or they can be used for the control and domination of all. That was the question at Homestead. It's the question 125 years later, and much of it's happening right in this river valley again. So to us, uh, and I, I think I've been the one pounding on this issue the most, that this is an absolutely relevant issue for today. What is happening today to our young people is very, very similar. Of course, everything's different. They don't wear uh, raggedy clothes and work in dirt, but they, they are facing an, as uncertain a future as the steel workers did uh, 125 years ago. Could we talk about the workers? Uh, how many people worked here? Who were they? Well, there were um, 3,000 right. or so uh, workers at that time. Um, about 800 of them were the skilled workers. The, the rest were um, 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 immigrants from um, Eastern Europe um, and Southern Europe, um, unskilled trade, um, some African-Americans, pro probably not a lot. Um, at that but, point. There, but there was actually a third group, and that was your, your folks, the skilled uh, builders. The, the maintenance, the carpenters, okay. the, although that was a big group that wasn't part of the production team. The production people were the 800 that got, got more money by the amount of steel they produced. That was the old traditional way. The, the issue of the strike was they wanted, Carnegie wanted to link workers' wages to the price of the product. Well, when you're increasing production by 100 or 1,000 fold, the price is gonna plummet. The workers said, what do you mean? We're outproducing what we used to do by 100 times and we're gonna get less money? So that was the, the nub of the issue. Carnegie said to the public, yeah, well, but you know, our prices are declining terribly in this industry. We have to tie the workers to the fate of our uh, 
corporate business uh, issues. And the workers would say, wait a minute, we're producing all this metal. And we, so there were 800 were these highly skilled production people who made money on the basis of how much they produced. There was a middle group of the maintenance, the carpenters, the people who actually built this mill. And then there was this 10% or so of laborers, many of whom by this time were from Eastern Europe. That's why we have an historian. <laughs> <laughs> We've mentioned Andrew Carnegie a few times. We should probably bring him into the story. How does he become involved in the Homestead Works? Carnegie was uh, at Edgar Thompson um, operating that mill, and he ended up buying um, Duquesne and then Homestead um, and consolidating those operations under Carnegie Steel Corporation. Um, and it grew from there. Obviously, he started in Lawrenceville at Lucy Farm. Right, he started it with, a, with his blast furnaces. Yeah. And he was a bridge builder. I mean, and he was very involved in, in iron and uh, iron products of all sorts. But the, the Braddock Mill was revolutionary. And he took the very best man, Captain J Bill Jones, from uh, Johnstown, where they had begun pioneering uh, the uh, best so-called Bessemer it was actually started by William Kelly of Pittsburgh, but that's a whole separate argument. But anyway, they took the, the Bessemer plant over here, became the most productive of all the Bessemer. He, Captain Jones was a very respected, hardworking man who got the same salary as the President of the United States uh, when he came here. That's what he demanded. Everybody else, Carnegie, got stock, which Carnegie kept artificially way low in value. So he had all of his managers were controlled because they couldn't leave because he had to let them cash out. And uh, so he, but Bill Jones says, you want me, you pay me the, the salary of the president of the United States. And he came over there and he built this mill. The second big thing was open hearth uh, furnaces, which were completely different. Rather than doing hour long heats, very quick, very intensive labor, these were eight to 12 hour processes. But the great advantage of open hearth was that you could make alloyed steel and you could tweak with metallurgists and engineers could tweak the quality of that steel. So they were able to do boilers, be able to do steel rail of a much higher quality. They, and they built structural steel that helped create skyscrapers. So the entire nature of American cities changed and they built uh, battleships and became a world power out of Bethlehem Steel and out of U.S. Steel were the two big centers. What sort of a change did Carnegie represent in terms of the operation of the mill? Because he came in with different policies than the workers were used to. Well, his, his uh, drive was um, a vertically, vertically integrated system um, that basically controlled um, the production of steel from raw material to finished product, everything working in one big symbiotic way. Uh, controlled by the company, controlled out of a downtown boardroom. Um, you didn't see that before that time. It was more independent operators scattered along the landscape um, um, that were partnering up through contracts. Um, but um, it, it was him, him not only controlling the steel production, but having close relationships with the transportation industry, the rail and river, uh, railroad and river barge industry, uh, obviously the coal and coke industry, that's where Frick comes into play at. Um, and then the product at the end of the line where he was selling back to, and um, the railroad industry was one of his largest customers at that time. It's primarily why Braddock and, uh, was, was built, and it's why it's named after Edgar Thompson, uh, uh, the president of the Pennsylvania Railroad at that time. You know, great marketing scheme. <laughs> uh, and, and I think, you know, obviously the relationship with Henry Clay Frick is the one that everybody knows about because of their 
the tension between them from the beginning. I mean, Frick had a uh, large measure of control over the Connellsville Coke. As Augie said, that was a coal that was particularly adapted. It was low in sulfur, which was very important to keep out of the process because sulfur uh, made steel brittle and was made it inferior. So he had, he had that, that's what he, he needed, but he needed the markets. Carnegie had the market, he had the need for it. But Carnegie always treated him as a junior partner where Frick saw it as a partnership of equals and that never, the two of them never agreed on that particular issue. So that, that, that was the root of the, the, the anger and tension between them. But on, on the worker's side, there's some very interesting characters here. There's Hugh O'Donnell who was a skilled worker made a very relatively high wage about, people were, the top wages at Homestead were 10 to $11 a day, which was a princely wage. Labor, labor, common labor in the 19th century was a dollar a day. Women made 60 cents, very similar to the ratio today. But the, uh, the steel workers at Homestead under the union contract, even labor made close to $2 uh, a day. And the, the production workers who were geared to the amount that they produced could make over $10 a day. And the head roller, this was a great insult to the management whose wages were lower in many cases, the foreman and all them because of the way Carnegie paid them. He came to work in a carriage. And uh, this just really uh, annoyed the hell out of the uh, managers there. I mean, the, the union from 1889, they got a contract, the only contract in a, and then in the most modern mill, they had a union contract. So they controlled the hours, they controlled the way things were paid, and they were, every time Frick and them were gonna put in new technology, a committee was there saying, what are you doing? How is this gonna affect us? How are we getting paid on this job? Maybe you should reorient it this way because it would actually work better. I mean, and this just drove Frick nuts because he said, we should, we have the money, we're putting the capital investment, we should control these decisions. We don't want a bunch of busybodies from the Amalgamated Association, the union coming around, giving their opinion on this. So he was determined in 1892 to break the union. Could we talk about the union uh, and maybe how it interacted with Carnegie and Frick? I'll let Charlie answer that. <laughs> <laughs> well, the Amalgamated at the time was probably the most powerful union in the country. It, it's argued whether it had uh, 30,000 or 40 or 50,000 members, it, probably 30,000 paid members, but the Amalgamated had a, uh, power well beyond its, uh, the amount of uh, people that actually paid dues. Uh, the, guy who wrote the inside history of the Carnegie Steel, a corporate man himself, said not a wheel turned or a fire burned from Maine to Texas without an amalgamated man being there. So in the iron industry, becoming largely Irish, who'd come in the, the famine, came over here, went at first into railroads, canal building, et cetera, but had moved up into the steel industry. So when you have the advisory committee here, virtually 90% Irish, and, and they don't need a roadmap to tell them who the enemy is. I mean, they are very familiar with the Scots-Irish Presbyterians who run Pittsburgh largely, and uh, this is an ancient enmity, and, uh, and they're articulate in English. So they become very eloquent spokespersons during this whole um, thing, and uh, uh, the Amalgamated, though, was basically a a union tied to a, a dying pro, a process that would die. It was still the dominant process in 1892, but it, in 10 years it would be virtually liquidated because you could just make so much more steel 
at a consistent quality than you could in these small batch operations, which had been the, the iron industry. So they were doomed. And, they, and to try to accommodate that and change their entire organization was extremely difficult. While Carnegie is very centralized, he knows exactly what he wants. They want power, they want domination, they want control. The Amalgamated is there with all kinds of different levels of production and having a very difficult time coordinating how to respond to this really existential crisis that they face. And, and correct me if I'm wrong, no. at 1892, this was the last union in the mill, in the steel mill industry in the country. Um, and it was an issue for Carnegie because it was the place of, of obviously, like Charlie said, the greatest production, but obviously the place where he could control the price the least. Um, so it was his directive to Frick at all, by all means, we're not signing a new contract unless they sign the one we want, shut the mill down if we have to, because his goal was to break the union and, and get it back to a, a, a production that would make him money. So this story really begins to build tension when the contract we've been discussing expires. How did that change the game for this story? Well, there, three years before, there had been a contract won. There had been a confrontation kind of on small scale uh, that like the one in 92 and 89, but uh, the, uh, the, the manager of the uh, facility caved in and signed a deal. And Frick was brought in at that point to then run the, the uh, Carnegie Steel to be the chief manager. And he was determined that this was not gonna happen again. So for three years, it ran under the union regime. And basically, workers day long, uh, day hourly, was tied to the length of time it took an open hearth furnace to operate. So they might work eight hours, and, or they might work to 12 hours. They finished a heat of steel. And, uh, but w once the union was broken, they went into uh, seven, 12, seven 12 hour shifts where the low, for the lowest 50%, 60% of the workers worked 84 hour weeks. And then not only did they work 84 hour weeks, but they uh, worked shift work, which was absolutely debit. What, what shift work did when you worked 12 hours a day and the next day you had to, to, sh to flip, you worked 24 hours straight. And what it did though, the, I am totally convinced that the reason for this type of uh, uh, shift uh, switching was to take workers out of the civic life of the community. You could no longer uh, run for office, you couldn't attend council meetings. Workers in the Mon Valley were totally removed from the civic life of the towns which were run by the professionals, by the managers. Uh, so that in 1892, the mayor, McLucky, was a steel worker. I think every single person but one on the city council was a union member of one sort or another. So they called this, this was the workers' republic. They, they ran this town and they felt like they should run it. And they felt like, well, Carnegie's the richest man in America. He's not doing too bad. And we ought to be able to share in this uh, Bonanza, because this was so overly, it was so powerful vis-a-vis -vis the rest of the, the, the industry. This, the, these Carnegie plants were at the cutting edge, so they were just raking in enormous amounts of money. The workers felt that they should share in that. But of course, Carnegie and Frick, the whole point of the technological changes was, was to, to control, and they did not want this counter uh, balancing 
force that could restrict them in any way. So when the union was broken, that's when the 12-hour, seven-day week came in, and that lasted till the mid-1920s, uh, when it finally, well, they went to a three-shift model, 56 hours at three different uh, times. But again, people were forced to swing, and swing shift was aimed at the civic life of the steelworker, the control of the community, in my opinion. I've never read any, seen any other rational explanation for why you would make people constantly change. There's, it's so dangerous from the circadian rhythm point of view. It's a very bad system to, to, to people to have to work under. So what course of action do the workers have at that point? Well, at that point in time, they knew uh, with Frick being in control, basically that he was going to bring in armed guards. He had, he had, he had shown that uh, through the coal fields um, leading up to this. Um, and the workers basically were, were set up. Um, um, they took, uh, they took uh, strike position in the, in the Bose building and, and Homestead on the main street. Um, they knew from Frick's actions in building the wall around the mill that ultimately they were gonna be shut out um, and were shut out. And, um, and they had sentries all up and down the river um, because the only way in and out of the mill at that point, since the workers had basically surrounded the wall and encapsulated the mill, uh, was by way of the river. And this was a landing area because the mill was being constructed at that point. Um, and so they had sentries all up and down, all the way down to downtown Pittsburgh and maybe beyond. And um, they knew when they were coming because there was reports that came upriver to Homestead of uh, a tug pushing two barges full of men. Um, and um, it gave them enough time, several hours from that point, uh, for everybody to get down here and basically surround the mill and knock the walls down and meet them at the landing area. Um, Could we talk about what Frick does to escalate this? Because it does turn pretty quickly. Well, I, I mean, I think the the order that comes to the Pinkertons, and the Pinkertons, about half of them roughly, is not certain, were experienced strike breakers. They'd been used in other places. 1877 railroad strike Pinkertons were used, especially in the Molly Maguires in the East. So they, there, there was a cadre of, of hardened uh, strike breakers who knew what was coming. They had, and they all had 300 Winchester repeating rifles, but about half of them had no idea what they were going into. They were some were students who were some, a good, good summer guard duty at an uh, uh, industrial facility. Others supposedly were drunks picked out of the bars in Ohio. Whatever they were, they did not know what was going to happen to them. And as they came up, there were scattered shots fired at the, uh, at the boat. And the, this is, remember, summer, so it's light by 5 a.m. They are uh, seen and, uh, and warning shots are taken and about seven they really dock here. And, uh, and at eight o'clock, going over the, we had the ceremony for in memory of the workers who were killed here. Uh, three, three of them uh, were killed at 8 a.m. So that seems to be when, initially a lot of the shots were up in the air, but at some point, some of them started hit, getting hit, and at that point, all hell broke loose, and people started trying to kill people, and that's when the most of the, uh, important segment of the people died at that point. Uh, Do you think Andrew Carnegie was supportive of Frick's measures early on, making this basically into an armed camp? Do we have any evidence of that? 
Well, yeah, I mean, he, yeah, he, he went to Scotland uh, and he wanted to stay out of it. And this is why Frick detested him the rest of his life was because he pretended, oh, if I had only been there, I would have done so differently. But he clearly, there are telegrams and stuff giving him absolute clear hand to do what you need to do. Don't let these strikers win. He knew Frick's methods. I mean, he may have been appalled by how it turned out, thought it could have possibly been done uh, more uh, finely. <laughs> but, uh, but on the other hand, I mean, th th that's what I think people always held against Carnegie was the hypocrisy side of it. Frick, you know, was hated, but, but he was respected. I mean, he was, the, he was the enemy. He was coming for them and he was out front. I mean, I, I ran into that when I first came to Pittsburgh, people who just detested Carnegie and wouldn't go to a Carnegie library. I'm talking old timers and stuff. But Frick, although they certainly hated him, they respected him because he, they knew where he was coming from. He never was any different. He was right out front. But Carnegie had given speeches that workers should have the right to combine. Capitalists get together in rooms with big fancy dinners and make deals about how they're gonna divide up the market. The workers should have the right to gather together and defend their labor. So he, he was pretty articulate about uh, the rights of workers, but when push came to shove, competition was the key. And, and, and Brady, the, you know, as you mentioned, this was building. Um, so it was not only a, um, a series of actions by Frick leading up to this in the coal fields where he broke the coal union. Um, the strike, the steel workers knew that and what they knew what was coming and they were prepared for it. And they had a lot of debate internally, you know, what should they do? Should it, should it be a strike or should they really fight for what they believed in and what they thought was their rights? Um, but the international press knew this too. They knew it was coming. And that's why you see also in the Bose building on the first floor, the, you know, the unions on the third floor looking out across the wall into the mill to see if anything is being restarted. The, un the, the, the International Press Corps is all on the first floor reporting this worldwide because you have got two major titans um, that are taking on the most powerful union left. Um, this was a massive confrontation brewing um, in the hot days of July and uh, it, just, it just ignited and, um, and we know what happened. Can we talk about what some have called the Battle of Homestead? Sure. Well, I mean, when they tried to land uh, around seven o'clock and then the real push seems to be at eight o'clock where there so many people get killed, uh, there was you know, a gun battle here and the Pinkertons never, the captain was wounded in the, around seven or 7.30. He's carried off with the tugboat to Braddock uh, to the hospital and the two barges are there now without any way of getting out. When the tugboat comes back, it's sent, with sh guns are fired at it and, and the, the uh, captain won't bring it to the shore. So now the, the, these guys are sitting in the heat in a confined space being shot at and uh, even at some attempts to throw dynamite at them, roll down fiery rail cars next to the, the thing. I mean, I, there were, of course, in. The union itself, though, is very important. Up at the Bose building on the upper floor, they had met with the sheriff of Allegheny County uh, a couple of, I think, the day, two days before. They burnt the, 
union uh, constitution. They turned in their union cards and burned it in front of the sheriff, destroyed their union, said the union, if they come up this river, we cannot control this. And it was true, there were many, uh, the guy who meets the captain at the gangplank was the Salvation Army guy, Billy Foy. He, there were a lot of people mixed into this battle. And behind it is the amalgamated leadership like uh, uh, Hugh O'Donnell and John McLucky, who by two or three in the afternoon are saying, these guys are crazy, they're getting dynamite out there, they're trying to, they're trying to kill them all. And they're, we know we're gonna be blamed whether we have anything directly to do this, with this or not. So they, uh, they, they begin to forcefully intervene with the crowd and try to bring them under control. And at five o'clock, O'Donnell exposes himself and accepts the, the white flag of the Pinkertons, which they had been trying for a half hour to an hour to wave a white flag, which would get shot, shot off. And O'Donnell eventually took, went out and, and, and accepted the surrender, at which point they took the the Pinkertons up, and that's when most of the, the blood was shed because the women and kids basically lined the way up. They, they put them in the German singing hall for their own protection. The, the strikers with the American flags marched in the front uh, all happy, and behind them came their prisoners. Well, as they passed through the lines of the town people, they beat, they beat them bad. They stripped them, they threw dirt in their face. They, 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 all of, none of them were killed in the gauntlet. But people in Western Pennsylvania had been brought up about stories of the Indian gauntlets. It was one of the most popular, popular images in people's head of the early colonial days. The famous ones were right here in this valley. So that, that idea was there, and, the, and it was the fierce women of Pittsburgh, or Homestead, were, were kind of the, the leaders of, of the attack on the Pinkertons. Uh, well, they had seen seven people carried through the streets dead, uh, many of whom, they represented every major ethnic group in the town had somebody killed. It was amazing how well distributed the death toll was among the workers. So. And, and it's interesting with that, with the townspeople, you know, you, 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 as a commoner, you can ask, well, what did the townspeople have in it? But they saw their vested interests in the production of what this mill did as what their life and their quality of life, as good as you can call a quality of life then, is what it was for them in the community. So as long as the mill survived and the mill was productive and the workers were productive and being paid a decent wage, Homestead was a viable living town. And they saw this attack by Pinkertons um, and to take jobs away from their, their husbands, their uncles, their dads, their grandfathers as a direct violation of their rights as town people to this community as well. And that's why they basically came down and provided support. What Charlie mentions, and you say there was, there was gunshots, they rolled out cannons. Yes. Uh, yeah, they, 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 the they Civil took, War cannons. They took Civil War <laughs> cannons out of the parks that were there as memorial to the Civil War. Um, um, they had them set up along the other side of other the river side. on the other bank. They were prepared for a major battle to defend their right in this mill. They saw them as equal owners. Where Carnegie or Frick put their money up, they put their blood and their sweat up. And they saw that as an equal investment uh, to them as uh, as the owners of the mill, and uh, it, it it was it was a it was a major confrontation. And that's very key in the like the Catholic priest Father Bullion at the end he talks about the, a worker's property right to his job, and that a 
People do not have the right to just come and take that away. A gang of ruffians uh, does not have the right to come to our peaceful, well-organized, happy town and take people's livelihood. And it was devastating. I mean, people, they completely changed the workforce here. So like John McLucky spent time in the immediate aftermath going around and giving speeches against uh, Andrew Carnegie in Chicago and Boston and New York. But after a while the, that wore out, he couldn't get a job anywhere. He had to go to Mexico, worked in a mine in Mexico and eventually worked on the railroad in Mexico. And Carnegie twice tried to send money to him, which he twice refused. And uh, John McLucky, the second time when uh, he was, first time he wasn't told who was trying to give him the money. The second time he was told it was Andrew Carnegie and he said, well, that was damned white of him. <laughs> and, and Carnegie puts that in his autobiography thinking it's a compliment. It was absolutely not a compliment. He was married to a Mexican girl. He was not <laughs> complimenting Carnegie's whiteness. We've established there's a lot of eyes watching this, a lot of press, a lot of media. What's the national reaction to this event? Well, it, it's massive because in the River Ran Red, the movie, and the, particularly the book, we collected first-person uh, articles from all around the country. And there's like one of the things we did when we had the commemoration, we, had the, the, we opened with the sermon of the Methodist uh, minister up there, and we closed with the sermon of the Catholic priest because we went from the public or Protestant cemetery over to the Catholic cemetery. Three guys buried on the... Uh, town side and three in the Catholic cemetery. So, uh, and, and it was symbolic because we opened, we started on the hill uh, where John Morris, uh, the best known of all the uh, strikers, a very popular young man with three kids and uh, he's killed it very early, eight o'clock in the morning. His body riles up the town. We start on, and by his grave in the hill is the uh, statue of the Union soldier and a beautiful uh, commemorative statue in the cemetery. And there we, we sang uh, John Brown's body and my eyes have seen the glory of the battle hymn of the Republic and talked about, uh, they saw this uh, for those who were, that was a generation, if they didn't fight themselves, their father, their uncle were there. And they saw what was happening to skilled workers who were proud and had a lot of power uh, and had won the war <laughs> by their labor, saw them being stripped of power and becoming just hands and under the control of very wealthy people who then could do with them what they wanted. So they called it wage slavery. And they saw the link between the fight against chattel slavery and the, the fight that they were waging. There was a continuity to them that I think many of them deeply believed, particularly McLucky. He constantly brought up this issue of, of uh, we were being reduced to the level of slaves. And uh, or we, or we're, we're, we're not gonna allow ourselves to be reduced to the level of slaves was the way that he put it. So, um, uh, but it had a huge impact. It changed the presidential election. Uh, Benjamin Harrison uh, uh, lost to Grover Cleveland. And as Augie mentioned too, is that the Democratic Party begins to win the allegiance of the working class. Up until then, Lincoln had the highest pluralities that Lincoln got were Allegheny County. And it was because of free soil and anti-slavery uh, and high tariffs to protect American industries. That was the Republican, uh, what they stood for. And so the Republican Party was powerful here. Well, that was the first crack that happened because the workers here at Homestead felt betrayed 
by the Republican Party and felt that the business interests had completely taken over the idealistic Republican Party that many of them had really related to in terms of the Civil War. So it had a huge change on that level too, the political level. Uh, what did this do to the public opinion on the labor movement? Did it help it or did it hurt it? Well, it, uh, there, there was an, uh, a consequence that happened right after the strike with um, um, a, a Russian anarchist that uh, attempted to kill Henry Clay Frick. Um, that changed the opinion, um, the public opinion, toward the union and the strike. Up to that point, the public was solidly behind that. Um, but uh, when this anarchist, uh, Alexander Berkman, um, uh, t tried to kill Frick in his office in downtown Pittsburgh, um, and, he, and he failed at that attempt, um, that was reported, and it began to look like now um, you, you were going from um, uh, what people saw as a, as a legitimate issue in the, in the right to strike and defend your job um, to a crime like murder. Um, even though the union had no association with Berkman, uh, they got tagged together. And that's what began to swing the attitude against the union um, in public opinion after that. Um, uh, and and, and um, you, know, you, you, had, you had the battles of union and, and the steel industry for many, many, many decades after that um, for a whole bunch of other reasons, but that one really hurt the union. Yeah, I mean, the, the, the fight against radicalism or against the Reds, you know, it becomes, emerges out of the 18, 1870 Commune in Paris and the 1877 railroad strike, but by Homestead, it becomes kind of a constant staple, and particularly in the 20th century, the fight against communism, et cetera, is used as a battering ram against kind of any radical labor uh, uh, people. So that, that is something that grows out of this whole conflict too. It's just beginning at this point, but there is a great shift from defense of your jobs with people are generally supportive to them seeing some anarchists from Russia and, and all these scary ideas of Europe coming over here and, and, and these ideological anti-capitalist things, people were not ready for that and that really uh, uh, it definitely, definitely hurt the, the cause. Can we talk about some of the people that were killed in the battle? There were Civil War veterans in this battle, is that correct? There was, yeah, I mean, there was one killed. Uh, he was buried not up here, he, he had a plot in Verona, but he had been at uh, half a dozen major battles of uh, the Civil War. And, uh, but I think the impact of the Civil War was really uh, more in this idea that, that workers have a right, or people have a right to be free. I mean, uh, the battle cry of freedom that, uh, and, and I think people were aware here that Jim Crow was coming in the South, that all these people had died, and yet slavery under a different modified form, not as radical as chattel slavery, but not too far off was happening in the South, and they were afraid that this kind of system was gonna come here where you have incredibly wealthy people, and then everybody else is barely making it. And the wages were effectively cut, hours were increased, uh, uh, so that people were 12 times seven uh, was common for over half the workplace after this. And, uh, and safety and issues like that went really downhill. And, and also technology, technological uh, uh, advances decreased because as long as labor was expensive, Carnegie and them, he would 
invest in anything to cut labor, cut the amount of labor costs in his thing. Once you got cheap labor and you got all these immigrants coming in working for a dollar, dollar and a half a day, and they were hands and you could replace them at will, then the impetus toward uh, technological advance really slow. By 1900, the steel industry has the same form. I mean, they were still using blast furnaces around here across the river that were you know, 50, 60 years old. I mean, the basic technology had not changed. Cheap labor made it technological change less imperative. And so uh, beside cutting the worker out of the process so there was no voice of the worker, there was no impetus to innovate because we, you were making tons of money and you were on top of the world, you didn't need to. And, uh, and so you know we had an industry which was just not used to innovating, which turned their back on continuous casters and basic oxygen furnaces, many of which were developed here in the United States, but didn't implement it. We were still putting open hearths here after World War II, and that was already an obsolete technology. So the idea of technological innovation had really dried up because of cheap labor. After the smoke clears, so to speak, and what happens to Homestead? I mean, what happens to the workers? What happens to the community in the wake of this event? Well, it becomes a, a bigger steel mill town, basically. Um, you have um, uh, the influx of immigration. Um, you have this mill expands during World War II, like a lot of the mills um, around here. Obviously, World War I in the, in the, in the 19 teens, and then World War II. Um, and um, you go from 3,000 workers then to, what was it, 15, 16, 17,000 workers here at Homestead, um, 10 or 12,000 at Duquesne, uh, seven or eight thousand at Braddock. I mean, these and become twenty thousand at Westinghouse Electric, right around the corner yeah, here. I mean, yeah. these are massive, you know, comparatively massive yeah. workplaces. Yeah, and and you know, and some people say that you know the the technological change and what Charlie talked about just before, um, if it weren't for the war effort, the decline of the industry would have happened here many decades before it did in the in the sixties and seventies. If it wasn't for those wars. And, and the investment in those mills in order to expand their production um, in defense of the country. Um, what happened here in Pittsburgh and southwestern Pennsylvania in the 60s and 70s would have occurred a whole lot earlier. But you know, for, that, for that 60, 70 years after, after the war, uh, I mean, after the battle, um, this place is a, a booming steel town. Um, uh, leads to production of steel um, in the country. Right, because Chicago passes Pittsburgh in the early 20s, but in, in World War II, we give 200,000 soldiers from Allegheny County to the, the World War II, and on top of that, we outproduce Chicago here in steel. I mean, the effort here on this area was unbelievable in World War II, as it was in the Civil War. This was a very, those two wars, I think, drew the greatest response, obviously, from the country, but also from this area. Could we talk about a little bit about modern day? I'm hearing themes sure. of manufacturing, immigration. Uh, these are central platforms of the president, Donald Trump's uh, campaign when he ran in 2016, and he ended up winning a lot of these small communities along the river individually. So uh, can manufacturing come back? Can steel come back uh, in the vision that, that the president had for that? Uh, no, um, it, the, the, the cost of investment is just beyond what any company or government subsidy would be able to afford. 
um, the blast furnaces, the carry blast furnaces sitting across the river there. If you, if you could even conceivably begin to put on paper the thought of reopening those to produce iron, it would cost hundreds upon hundreds of millions of dollars just to get that mill back into production, or even if you tore it down and rebuilt a new one. Um, but beyond that, let's say you could, the, the whole connectivity of the industry is gone. The railroad connection is, issues are gone. Uh, the supply industry to the mill is gone in this region. So it isn't just building a plant. It's the network that that plant or facility would rely on in order for it to produce. That whole infrastructure is gone. And, and, and so now you're talking about an investment that is hundreds of billions of dollars in cost. Plus, it, it just won't happen. Plus the human capital. I mean, Steeler Nation is the result of the mass migration outward of the working class. I mean, we estimated from Youngstown to Johnstown 200,000 jobs, plus what their families go. So you got seven Steeler bars in Montana. Uh, there are, they say, why do they go to these games and 50% of the people are black and gold? And they say the Steelers travel well. No, they don't travel well. They live there. They're everywhere. And, but they keep their loyalty to something they remember here, a sense of solidarity, of working pride. Of, there's, there is something really great about the roots of this town. Uh, but uh, to bring it back, I, I think we do need to be very concerned about U.S. Steel and the Edgar Thompson works in the remaining industry. We need steel production. We need to build high, we need protection of those things. And Donald Trump played on a resentment, which I share. I mean, I worked with coal miners much of my last 30 years and, and steel workers. The anger was genuine and deserved by the part of the people that kind of run the country, just thought we could toss these people away and it didn't matter. But the, the answer obviously was totally absurd. I mean, we're, this administration is not, doesn't have the knowledge or, and like Augie said, the infrastructure and the human infrastructure is, is gone. What we need to do is look at what's happening down at Carnegie Mellon and not relive the thing of making a very few people extraordinarily wealthy and making everybody else uh, uh, work for next to nothing. We gotta figure out how do we make these technological improvements work for the advantage of everybody and for the society as a whole and keep them contained so they're not used in a, what could be incredibly devastating ways for the future of democracy and for the future of our country. So picking up what Charlie said in the basis of your question, you know, you don't need to build new steel mills or, or um, um, reinvest in a region only to build, build mills. There are mills here, there are mines, there are different types of industries. You know, if the government were going to invest in that, it would make this region benefit from it, that would be great. There's new technologies that are coming out um, of these universities um, um, that the, the government could invest in. Um, so it isn't just the steel mill, as the president said, that he wants to have come back. There's other things that government can invest in that could help rebuild these communities. And there are a lot of communities in this valley. You know, we talk about Pittsburgh as a shining example of um, revitalization, but you go up the valley just two or three miles, there are several communities that um, have not had any investment in it. Those towns need to be looked at and need and deserve some type of help in figuring out what types of industries and businesses can be relocated into them. Otherwise, they're just going to further deteriorate. So you have, you have this shining city in the middle of a ring of a lot of towns around here 
where there are people that are struggling. And that's where the basis of a lot of that vote came from. And as Charlie said, they're angry. They feel like they've been left out of this revitalization um, that's been gone on for the last 20 or 30 years. And, and I'd say, you know, the, one of the key things is, I, I mean, I came up with a doctorate in philosophy and became a machinist, carpenter, whatever. And I, I believe that the, the knowledge and skill of the hands is as important as the knowledge and skill of the head, that as a society, you have to walk on two feet and that we, we have gotten totally out of balance, you know, telling all our kids, you gotta go to college, you gotta sit in front of terminals, you can't get your hands dirty, you can't build bridges. No, no, we need a balance and we need to respect the people who have the skills of the hands and the intelligence of practical knowledge. This, we need people to grow things, make things, build things. That's critical. And those people need to be shown respect and those skills need to be uh, paid decently and given a way that they can have families and a future. On that note, I'd like to thank my guests for joining us today. As always, if you have questions about today's episode or recommendations for future episodes, please visit our website at PCNTV.com. For everybody here at Battlefield, Pennsylvania, I'm Brady Kreitzer saying so long.